Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, sleep tight stories. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is getting an upgrade this weekend, July 16th, as it debuts a new three-digit number for calls and texts. The new number is 988, and the hope is that the shorter number will be more memorable during a crisis, underscoring how important the service is Latest numbers show that one in six calls to the hotline have gone unanswered, so it's more important than ever to get people connected when they need help. For more on what to know about the changes and the new number 988, we'll speak to Brianna Abbott, health reporter at the Wall Street Journal. The biggest change that's happening is, like you mentioned, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is getting its new three-digit number on Saturday. It's going to be at 988. And like you mentioned, the hope is that the number will be more memorable. And so if someone is having suicidal thoughts or mental health crisis or someone that they know, like a loved one is having such a crisis, they can call that number and get connected with a trained counselor for help. The Lifeline has been active since 2005. There's about 200 individual call centers across the country. There's 13 national backup centers. This is going to increase to 17 of those by the end of the summer. There's been an influx of federal and state money going into this very recently. Yes, definitely. So there is a lot of federal money. It's something like $432 million that is going into this. And you hear from the agencies that run the Lifeline is that historically it's been pretty underfunded. They've had some staffing issues in the past. And so the hope is that there is a new influx of federal funds to sort of really reinvigorate this response network. Tell me where we're at with the suicide rate in the country. It seems that overall rates are down from a peak back in 2018. But still very, very recently in the last couple of years, we're seeing that rate tick back up. The suicide rate overall in the U.S. increased by about 30 percent from 2000 to 2020, peaking in 2018. So that means 2018 was the highest year and the last two have gone down from that. But you're also seeing suicide rates rise among specific groups instead of just overall. So while it's down a little bit from the 2018 peak, there's still definitely a, a long way to go. 
And now back to the lifeline and, you know, why it's so important. And the unfortunate statistic is that one in six calls to this suicide prevention lifeline end without reaching a counselor. I mean, that's some millions of calls in a, in a time span that they looked at from 2016 to 21. 1.5 million calls were abandoned before they were answered, but just really underscores how useful and how necessary this is. Definitely. And in those years from 2016 to 2021, the annual call volume actually increased by 92%. So these centers were getting a lot more calls just year over year than they had in the past. And about one in six or 15 to 17% of them, the caller actually hung up or the call was abandoned before they actually reached a counselor. And so we don't necessarily know why these calls were abandoned. Either they were waiting too long or maybe they changed their mind or someone came in the room like we don't really know but a lot of officials and experts sort of really highlight that when someone is in crisis they need a response quickly and some of the data suggests from vibrant emotional health which administers the lifeline that about 80 percent of those callers to the national crisis line who do hang up do so after waiting two minutes or less and the average speed of answer is 45 seconds so that's pretty fast but um we definitely still there's there's room for improvement for sure you're right it it is pretty fast but when somebody's in crisis every second can really seem like a lifetime so it's critical to answer as quickly as possible and tell me how it works because obviously you're hoping or or Even the call centers hope to answer somebody locally. So the first calls are routed to a local crisis center. If they can't pick up there, it's uh, sent to a backup national center. Tell me a little bit about it and and some of the states involved in this, because some states like Illinois in particular have have had a tough time keeping up with a lot of the calls. Definitely. So the calls are routed to local crisis centers based on area code, which is pretty important because area code is based on the area code of like your original phone number. And so it's rooted to the states. And officials say that answering in state is preferable because that way the callers on the other end, the counselors, better know about the local resources in the area in case sort of you need additional help. Like those counselors are are better equipped to handle and sort of tell you where to go. And different states have different levels of in-state pickup rates, which is sort of how how they describe it or an in-state answer rate. Like, for instance, Arizona, which is one of the best answers, 92% of their calls to their crisis center within the state. But then you have, like you mentioned, states like Illinois, where almost three out of four calls were answered by the backup centers and out of state because they weren't able to answer it in-house. And our review also found that in 11 states, most of the calls were routed to the backup centers because the local centers could not handle the volume that was coming through. In addition right now to uh, adding the number 988, and you know, we can repeat it as many times as we can, 988 is going to be the new number for this. They're also uh, trying to recruit more staff, retain current staff, obviously, and they're going to be putting a lot more effort into all that. And for a lot of people, this it really works. They found out that 90% of suicide of people who have been surveyed, who texted the lifeline and, you know, call, like it's been very helpful for them. You know, maybe not completely all the way, but it is something that really helps at the moment. So We'll see how the rollout goes. As you mentioned, Saturday is the big day for all of this. 988 is the new number for the uh, uh, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Brianna Abbott, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This week, we also heard that Twitter is now suing Elon Musk, seeking to enforce the $44 billion deal that he made to buy the company. This comes after the news that he said he wanted out of the deal. Musk says his decision to drop out 
has to do with Twitter not providing him enough information to be able to verify how many accounts on the platform are fake. And that could be tough to decide, as data scientists say, that number isn't easy to determine. It's a complex metric that this legal battle will be centered on, and there's a variety of outcomes that could be at play here. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Twitter said uh, it provided Mr. Musk all the information that it's required or obligated to provide him under the terms of the deal. So the lawsuit says that's not grounds for termination, nor are among uh, several other things that he has cited in his letter saying that he wanted to terminate the deal. For example, the the gathering of financing, that's not an issue. Um, He also waived his due diligence on the deal and uh, Twitter has said that he breached several parts of the contract for the deal, even just by tweeting, for example, that it was temporarily on hold and among other uh, grievances. And so it does look like Twitter may have a strong case here for those reasons. And a big part of this, obviously, right, is how many fake accounts, how many spam accounts or bots are out there. Twitter has said that they think it's less than 5%. Elon Musk and his people say it could be closer to 20%. But one of the things that data scientists say in all this is it's pretty hard to actually come up with a number. And I'm sure, as we know, everybody knows, right, you can skew a number to go a lot of different (laughs) ways. So, you know, one set of people is going to look at it one way, the other going to look at it a different way, and they're going to fight for what they can come to an agreement on there. But Just tell me about some of the conversations you've had with some of these people on how difficult it is to come with that number. It is very difficult. And first of all, we're talking about a platform where there are hundreds of millions of tweets posted daily. And that's a really large volume. And then when you go about trying to analyze that data, first of all, there's really no way to come up with a precise number. Partly that's because there's no universal definition of what constitutes a spam. So you really need to, if two parties are disputing this topic, you really need to come to an agreement on what constitutes a spam. And then you have to think about the process for going through it and coming up with some sort of an estimate. I mean, there's good ways and bad ways to do it. But generally speaking, it takes time you want to look at a large sample pool over time because things change and and behaviors change. And so if you look at just one specific week, for example, maybe there's a holiday that week or some sort of event happened, it it skews the results. So many researchers have attempted to come up with this and there's never really been one that stood out to say, you know, we've got it and this is definitively it. Everyone comes (laughs) up with an estimate. And Twitter has been very transparent about that. For years, it's said, this is an estimate. And they've disclosed that in their filings and according to the terms of the deal, Mr. Musk can't dispute anything that they put in their filings. So it's one of those tough issues. But generally speaking, you also have to keep in mind that many people who go on Twitter don't tweet. They just look at content. Um, And so if you're depending what your baseline is for measuring spam and fake accounts, you need to take into consideration the fact that you can't base it just on tweets because some people may have, there may be fake accounts, but they don't necessarily tweet, but they follow. Twitter, for its part, to calculate how many users they have, they go by the average number of monetizable daily active users on its platform. They say that number is 229 million. So the fake accounts would be less than 5% of that. You know, they said that they provided Elon Musk with a lot of information. Some of that stuff they can't 
provide everything, you know, multiple human reviews, private user data that they weren't giving Musk's people. So, you know, on that front of it, are they not doing their due diligence by providing some of that stuff? I mean, that's going to be the burden of proof that Elon Musk is going to have to give. And all of this stuff is being done in this, uh, this court in Delaware, the Delaware Chancery Court. And Twitter, for their part, I mean, they have a big guy that's their lawyer who used to sit on that court. I mean, he's very familiar with how that court operates as well. You raised um, several good points in that when we talk about bots, there's so many factors to consider. And when you look at Twitter's process, it does, like you said, involve human review. So that's something you can't easily replicate. And if we're disputing how Twitter comes up with its number, and that is based on not just human review, but also private user data that it's not sharing with Mr. Musk, then it's very difficult to dispute their particular process or their results. And and then, as you said, the, the question becomes, okay, well, uh, did they provide him with enough information? And they did give him access to its so-called fire hose, which is basically near real-time tweets as they come in. And they gave him historic data, and they walked him through the process for coming up with its monetizable daily active user number, which is that 229 million figure. And so uh, this is what they said they've done, and that they've, as you said in the beginning, bent over backwards. It's not clear what other additional information they could provide. And when it comes to private user data, um, there are a number of laws that prevent companies from sharing that information. And bear in mind, this is a person who has already agreed not to share certain things, and yet he goes, on Twitter and publicly shares them. So it's, it's a really tough position for Twitter to be in. All this is setting up a very interesting legal battle. There's a bunch of things that can happen, right? Elon Musk can be forced to buy it at that $44 billion. There's a number of other options that are on the table, too. I mean, it's going to be pretty crazy to see what happens. So we'll follow all of that. Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. We also heard of some very interesting medical news out of the field of xenotransplantation. This has to do with transplanting animal organs into humans. We learned of two brain-dead people that had pig hearts transplanted into them, which offered doctors a chance to use new infectious disease protocols designed to help ensure that pig viruses aren't transmitted to patients. There was a recent story of a man named Dave Bennett who received a pig heart, which later found out to have a pig virus in it. This is all leading up to plans for the FDA to allow clinical trials for pig organ transplants. For more on all this, we'll speak to Amy Doxer-Marcus, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. This is an interesting moment in an effort that's been going on for decades. I think it really got accelerated a lot by the fact that there was a pig heart transplant in a critically ill man named David Bennett back in January. 
And that was done under an emergency authorization from the FDA. And it was done with the hope that it would extend his life. And he did live for 60 days, but then he passed away. And the scientists who were involved with his transplant discovered 20 days after his surgery that there had been a pig virus in the pig heart that was transplanted into him. And there's a lot of screening that goes in to ensuring that viruses in the organs, that you don't choose a pig that has a virus. And so in the wake of that, the NYU team really focused on the fact that, okay, how do we improve the testing to make sure that that doesn't happen again when we go back into living patients, potentially in a clinical trial. And so that was part of the goal of these two transplants that were done in brain-dead individuals. Let's try to create some new tests. Let's improve our protocols. And they took a number of steps to do that. In the case of Mr. Bennett, we don't know if the pig virus in the heart contributed to his death or not. There's an investigation going on. They'll figure it out later if that happened. But obviously, that's one of the top concerns for the FDA. We just went through this whole pandemic. They don't want anything to slip by, some virus to transfer over to humans, infect other people, another novel virus possibly. So there's a big concern, and obviously, rightfully so. So that's why they're really trying to improve these tests. I mean, what kind of pig viruses are they concerned about? Things like that that, that could possibly infect a human? So one of the viruses at the top of the list is the virus that was found in the pig heart that had been transplanted to Mr. Bennett, and that's a pig virus known as pig CMV. There's a human version of that virus, but there, it's a very common virus that's found in pigs. So that's, And they had tested for that virus, but the tests weren't sensitive enough to pick it up because it's a virus that can be hidden in the tissue. The pig didn't have any kind of like active infection, but the virus is hiding in the tissue. And when you take that organ and you take it out of the pig and you put it into a new immune system, a human immune system, and then this is a patient that's very immune compromised and has to have a lot of medications to ensure that his immune system doesn't reject an animal organ. That's kind of like a, an environment in which doctors would be very fearful for viruses in pig organs to wake up. So they put pig CMV at the top of their list, but there's a number of other common pig viruses, porcine lymphotropic herpes viruses, porcine circoviruses. These are very common viruses in pigs that they also right. tested for, and a group of retroviruses known as PERVs that are in the genome of all pigs. They had a whole list, but those are some of the viruses that are at the top of the list. Yeah, everything seemed to go according to plan with these latest two transplants. As we mentioned, it was they were done in brain-dead patients, and it was to see you know, if they can te continue testing this, for these viruses and really set a new set of strategies for all this to prevent any of that. Amy, tell me a little bit about these possibility of these clinical trials that could be coming on board because we're short on organs across the country. More than 100,000 people in the U.S. are on the national waiting list for organs. 6,000 people die each year. I mean, we talk about this every time these things, these crazy transplants come up, right? So what would these clinical trials look like and how close are they even? It's hard to know how close they are because the FDA hasn't really given a timetable. There are some groups that are approaching the FDA and, and have approached them in the past asking for what sort of additional data would be required in order to start clinical trials. If the clinical trials do eventually start, they would be very small 
and they would be very controlled. One difference that doctors distinguish between what was done in the case of Mr. Bennett and what would be done in a clinical trial is that in Mr. Bennett's case, it was an emergency authorization. This was really a Hail Mary to try to extend his life. In a clinical trial, you're going to have an opportunity to be more rigorous in selecting the kinds of patients that you admit. They'll set sort of standards for inclusion and exclusion. You're going to be following them really carefully, and it's going to be supervised by, you know, the regulatory agency. So it's a much more controlled environment than when you have a critically ill person and that, you know, when you're doing something very risky and experimental because you have no other alternatives because he might die at any moment. So it's, it's a little bit of a different approach. But the FDA did hold a public advisory committee meeting last month for two days in which they sought advice from experts. They also made their own presentations and asked questions, and they raised a lot of the issues that would be on their mind. They said that they were aware of the critical need for organs and that animal organs could be a potential source in the future, but they did talk about the public health risk of using animal organs, and they really want to make sure that all safety precautions are taken, and that was a subject of great discussion. Well, I mean, we'll see how this develops, right? We've tried it out with pig hearts. We've tried it out with pig kidneys. Um, As you mentioned, right, this could be a source in the future, but we have to get there. We have to do the studies for it. I don't want people to think that it's going to happen tomorrow. It's something that people are working on, and these developments show that there's momentum that's picking up, but definitely um, I don't think people should expect this as a source of organs in the coming year. Amy Doxer-Marcus, health and science reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.